Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Uh, we are so excited that you're here with us today, not only to sing God's praises, but also to open up God's Word this morning and hear from Him. And hopefully we have that opportunity this morning. Well, we're in the middle of a series called Joyride. And it's funny because I've been looking at this logo for several weeks now. You have too. Uh, and what's interesting about the logo and what's interesting about uh, that look is most of us in the room, we can kind of think of a moment or a time where we were on a joyride. Like the idea of being in a place, going on a road trip, maybe with some friends, with your family, that was just this joyous, fun time together. And it's funny because at the beginning of our summer, I had the opportunity to take our kids uh, to the West Coast to visit my wife's family. She's from uh, California. And we were there, and, and ever since that moment or that week, every time I look at this logo, I laugh a little bit. And let me explain why. So we flew into L.A., and we had like four hours to drive up to see my wife's family. And so we decide to capitalize on the day. that not, We're not just going to drive the highway up. We're going to take a joyride and stop at several fun places along the way, right there on the Pacific Coast Highway, which we've been on there before. And so me being the planner that I am, I start researching like fun places to go, and I find this place called Pirate's Cove. And on Pirate's Cove, this is that beach, there's like this sunken ship or this washed up, it's not sunken because it's on the shore, it, this, this ship that got wrecked on the shore. And I start researching this and thinking, man, this would be a cool place to take the kids. There's some caves that you can kind of venture into right there off the coast. And so I, I get our family, we pull into the driveway, you know, I'm not really paying much attention to what's going on. I'm on a mission, right? And so we get down to this beach and it's kind of remote, it's like a little out of the ways, it's not like right off the highway, you have to go down this path, almost a hiking trail to get here. And this is where we start our journey and we're sitting there and we're looking around this, this ship and then we find out a little further, or I researched this, a little further there's these caves and so we start making our way to the caves, all four children, right? The five-year-old, the nine-year-old, the 13-year-old, the 14-year-old. And we're just walking around the beach, walking down the beach. And all of a sudden, I see this guy with this white bucket hat on. And that wouldn't be so weird, but that's all he had on. My five-year-old looks at him and goes, Dad, why does that guy only have a bucket hat on? He's naked. We stumbled upon a clothing-optional beach. And then this self-awareness kicks in. I'm like, we're the only, these are the only kids on this whole beach. So we're like scurrying off the beach, you know. We get up there and we see the sign. And it's not like in big, bold letters. It's like the seventh bullet point that says clothing may be optional on this beach. I'm like, you need to make a big deal about that. But that's not the whole story. Then we get in the car and we continue our way up the beach. And then our GPS takes us on this shortcut. You ever been on one of them shortcuts? We get on the shortcut and the road is like 
smooth, it's, it's nice, but it's, it's a quiet road. It's like this country road. And I'm thinking, wow, this is so cool. We get to see all this cool stuff. There's, you know, this, just these fields of golden wheat, you know, that, that look, you know. And we're, we're driving, and all of a sudden the road goes from concrete to gravel. And we're like eight miles into this road. And then the road goes from gravel to dirt. And then the road goes from dirt to like washout, where I'm literally like having to drive around the valleys of the road, you know. And we are just completely lost. And we keep driving, and we, we're not, I'm not flying. I'm going really slow because I'm trying to make it through. And then all of a sudden, we see this house, and it looks like something out of the movies. And there's this guy at the end of the road with this long beard. Nothing against beards, guys. He starts picking up rocks and throwing them at our van. I'm like, we got to get out of here. I mean, we're, we are flying down the road. And the whole thing, we finally get to my parents' house or my, grand, my father-in-law's house. And praise God, everything worked out. But here's the truth and something I want you to think about. We all have stories like that, don't we? The moment where we thought it was going to be a smooth sailing ride, a fun-filled adventure, and out of nowhere, the joy ride turns into catastrophe. What do you do in those moments? How do we choose joy in the midst of crazy moments like that? That's what this whole series has been about. Look at your series introduction. We've said this almost every week, but I want us to look at this again. Joy is the unshakable assurance that God is in control of all the details of our lives. It's the confidence that ultimately we can trust God in everything that comes into our lives. And it's the determined purpose to praise Him in all things. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 We've said this each week that Paul is clearly writing the letter to the church there in Philippi. And remember where Paul is when he's writing this, okay? He's not kicked up on some beach, right? He's not doing that. He's in jail. He's chained up. He's in prison. And truth be told, he doesn't know what the future holds for him just yet. He doesn't know what the immediate future is. This is where Paul is, where he's writing this letter of joy. And he says here in Philippians 3, starting in verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers and sisters. Now, I think this is hilarious that the translation for audio Bibles is the word finally. Because think about it. Philippians is four chapters long, and we're starting chapter 3. Like, where's the finally in that? This guy could be a great Southern Baptist preacher because he, we're not even halfway through the book yet. We're at the halfway point, and he uses the word finally. Probably a better translation, and some of your Bibles might say this, is furthermore, or as, as for the rest of the story, he says here, further, as for the rest, my brothers and sisters, Rejoice in the Lord. Be joyful. There's this strong encouragement of joy. Paul is strongly encouraging joy. In fact, the phrase that's given here, if you look at the tense of the word, it's in the imperative command. He's not just encouraging this. He's really saying, hey, this is what you do. 
right? Like, obey here, be joyful. And here's what's crazy. We've heard Paul use this word a bunch already. Like, this whole book is filled with this thought process, this theme of joy and rejoicing. But this is the first time in the book that he adds the phrase, in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul is giving us here the source of our joy. That if we want to know where our joy is coming from, it's not coming in the outer, it's coming from Christ himself. And he really identifies here the difference between joy and happiness. Between joy and happiness. And I've got a couple definitions here based on this context here of what those two things are. Happiness is based on happenings. Happiness is based on happenings. It's external and it's temporal. Think of it, the same phrasing, H-A-P. You find it in the word happenings. You find it in the word haphazard. It's this idea of, that our bliss, our happiness is based on the things that happen to us, both good and bad. It's these external circumstances that are coming into our lives, and let's face it, none of them last. They're very, very temporal. It doesn't last because it's based on what happens to us. We get the new job. We get the new house. We make the team. We pass the exam. We go on vacation. These moments of bliss that are in our lives that we look for. And, and quite frankly, the opposite of those cause the opposite effect of happiness, right? The happenings that cause non-happiness, like not getting the new job, losing the house, getting cut from the team, failing the exam, missing the vacation, or going on vacation and not going the way you wanted it to go. We all know this stuff happens in our lives. It's temporal, and it's this external stuff. It's fleeting, and that's why I can tell a story like I told, and everyone kind of laugh. And the reason for it is we've all been there in some variation of our lives. We've all taken our kids on vacation, and everything didn't go as planned. And the problem is when we do something like a vacation, which a lot of you guys had the opportunity to do this summer, we go on a vacation, the stakes are so high. And the reason they're so high is because we're banking on that bliss. We are banking on this temporal happiness that we can have in our lives. That, that you think about that. When it's not there, when the, when the happiness is not there, that's why the friction is so tough. You spouses, you know what I'm talking about, right? Right? Things don't go as planned. Why is it? I don't know if this is true for y'all. Maybe it's just true for my family. I know it's true for my mom and dad. Um, why is it that there's so much more friction, it seems, when you're on vacation? It's because of this. We're banking on the happiness to come. And when it doesn't, it creates friction. Disney World, maybe it is the happiest place on earth. But let's be honest, don't we want something in our lives that outlasts a geographical location or a certain week of our year? This is what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, hey, happiness, it's based on happy, happenings, 
But joy is based on Jesus. It's internal and it's eternal. It goes beyond your outer circumstances, what's happening in your life, and it's found in your internal trust in an eternal Savior. This relation, and, and here's the thing, this doesn't just happen overnight. It's cultivated in a relationship with Jesus. That gaining Jesus is more than just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's hope for tomorrow, yes, but it's also joy for today. And this is what we're after. So Paul gives us this strong encouragement, be joyful, and then he tells us about a subtle enemy of our joy. A subtle enemy, something that we don't often think about when we think of the enemy of joy. And, and here's the truth. There's a lot of enemies of joy. There's a lot of things you could say here. But I believe what Paul is talking about here is something that we don't really think about often. Look at the rest of verse 1. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs. Now, I don't know about you, but as you read this, you think to yourself, okay, what's the context of this? Because when I think of a dog, I think of this, right? Like, when you think of a dog, you're thinking happy. I mean, we've domesticated dogs, right? Like, this is what we think of. This is my good friend, uh, friends David and Gina's dog. And if I could ever own a dog, I don't own a dog. But if I did own a dog, it'd be this dog, Cooper. He's the sweetest dog. He comes up, he hugs you, he does all that stuff. And so for us, when we hear the phrase, watch out for these dogs, sometimes we forget that the context is not this kind of dog. The dog in the first century looked more like this. This is what Paul is talking about. These dogs were scavengers and carried dangerous infections, and they would bite people walking by. I mean, they had no rhyme or reason to their bark and to their bite. And, and, and here's the thing. These kind of creatures were so despised in the early world, in the ancient world, that the Jewish people would often use the phrase dog or the term dog as a racist remark. The Jews would use this term, dog, for anyone that wasn't them. Basically, anyone that was a Gentile, they would call dogs. And what Paul is saying here in this phrase, and, and we're going to read the rest of it here in a minute, but what Paul's talking about here is he's saying, hey, it's not the Gentiles that are the dogs. The dogs are the certain Jews who put their confidence in something other than the saving work of Jesus. And like a dog, this diseased teaching they carried was infecting others around them. Read the rest of the verse with me in verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those evil do doers, those mutilators of the flesh. Now, now, this mutilation of the flesh gives us a little more context into what specifically Paul is talking about here. What they believed, not, not Paul, but what these dogs, these people, what they were teaching, what they believed, is that if you really wanted to become a Christian, if you really wanted to follow Jesus and be sincere in following Christ and having a relationship with him, you had to become a Jew and you had to be circumcised. 
Now, Kevin, if you don't know what circumcision is, just talk to your parents about it. They'll tell you more about that later. But, but here's what was true. Like, this is what they truly believed. And this is strange for us. Like, when we hear this, we're like, that's, that's crazy. But in this time, this is what they believed, that to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus... You had to become a Jew. You had to be circumcised. And it's, that it was more than just saving faith in Christ. There were positions and performances that had to take place in a person's life in order for them to follow Jesus. So what were some of them? They had to be circumcised. They had to not work on the Sabbath. They had to eat kosher, so no bacon. And this was their thought process. And at the heart of this thinking is this subtle enemy of our joy. This subtle enemy. Now, for some of you, you heard no bacon, and you're like, that's not a subtle enemy. That's a straight-up assault of joy, right? But this is what they believed. And you see, the lie that Paul is exposing here is that your standing with God is based on your position, and it's based on your performance. That you're standing with God, your relationship with him is all based on your position and your performance. But Paul argues against this. Look at what he says in verse 3. For it is we who are the circumcision. Now, Paul is setting the record straight and he's not talking about surgical, physical circumcision here. And here's how we know this. Look at, look at what the prophet Jeremiah says. Actually, it's not going to be on the screen. I forgot. But here's what the prophet Jeremiah says. He says this in Jeremiah 4.4. He talks about circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts. Now, how does a person do that in the ancient world? How does a person physically go in, open up the chest cavity, and circumcise, circumcise the heart? Clearly, he's not talking about physical circumcision here. He's talking about something that happens on the inside that is a spiritual thing. And how does this happen? Paul continues and tells you, for it is we who are the circumcision. Verse 3, we who serve God by our own strength, who boast in all the good things we do. Now, is that what that says? No. Look at what it says. For it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his what? Spirit. By his spirit. Who boast in who? Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ. And who put no confidence in the flesh. It's not our own flesh doing this. It's the Spirit of God activating within us. And then verse 4 says this, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, it sounds like Paul's bragging here, doesn't it? It sounds like he's kind of bragging, saying, hey, you think you're good, I'm better. No, it's not the point of what he's trying to say. He's basically saying here, hey, I've been there. I've thought this way. I've thought like those dogs before. I've thought that way. I thought my standing with God was based on position. And then he goes on to tell you what he used to think or what he thought. First thing is he did the rituals. Like Paul's saying, I did the rituals. Verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day which is like something that every good Jewish family would do for their sons. Now, now, let me ask you this. 
Did Paul decide any of that? Did Paul decide to be circumcised on the eighth day? No. It was by virtue of the family that he was born into. But he did all the rituals. Paul says, I was a part of the chosen race. He says, of the people of Israel. Again, did Paul control that? No. He was born into that. Third, Paul says, I was ranked among the greatest. Verse 5 says at the end, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, this takes a little understanding, but he was part of one of the most distinguished tribes in Israel. This tribe gave Israel their first king. This tribe, when the country split, when the nation split, this tribe stayed with the faithful remnant, the faithful uh, group Judah. And this tribe holds the city, the capital city of Jerusalem. In fact, some of you guys are going to be going to Israel in a couple months. When we go to Jerusalem, we are entering the ancient territory of the tribe of Benjamin. And he's saying, hey, I was distinguished. I was ranked among the greatest. He sums it up by saying a Hebrew of Hebrews. This idea that he was the top rank, the top person. And and what what I find interesting here is all of these things indirectly were completely out of his control. And this is what we find true about positions. That positions are oftentimes given, not earned. Sometimes they're earned. But let's be honest, a lot of the things that we find in our lives, the places we find ourselves, the situation we find ourselves in, we were either born into or we knew the right person to get us where we are. But it wasn't just position in his life that was impressive. It was also his performance, the things that he was in charge of. Paul clarifies, I exercised morality. The end of verse 5 says, in regard to the law... I was a Pharisee. Now, we always hear about the bad rap of Pharisees, and there's absolute truth to to a lot of that because Jesus gives them a bad rap. But the truth is what the Pharisee was known for is keeping the law perfectly. Like the moral law, man, they were so focused on keeping that. In fact, they were so focused on it, they would create other laws to safeguard them against breaking the bigger laws of the Bible. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, hey, I exercise morality. He then explains his sincerity. He says in verse 6, as for zeal, I persecuted the church. I was so sincere in what I believed, I actually was jihading against the Christians. Like I had no problem exercising violence, exercising and, and carrying out death because I believed so sincerely in what I thought. Now, Paul would say here, hey, I was sincere in what I practiced, but I was clearly sincerely wrong. But this was a man who was sincere. Paul finishes with purity. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Let's be honest. Who in the room would ever say that about themselves with a straight face? I'm faultless, I'm perfect, I'm totally pure in all things that I do and think. Paul's saying this. Now, now here's here's the question. Why is Paul doing this? What's the purpose of this? The whole point of this is simple. 
If anyone can lay claim to their standing with God based on position and performance, if anyone could do that, it'd be Paul. Paul would be the guy. In fact, I would dare say, based on what we know of Scripture and what we know of the world we live in, I would dare say this might even still be true. That when you look through Scripture, as far as a human's concerned, outside of Christ, man, Paul had it going on. He wrote a good portion of the New Testament. He had all of that. And yet, his point in saying all that and sharing all that is it's ultimately a lie that steals my joy. I want you to think for just a minute. Think for a moment of the positions and the performances that you judge yourselves by. I want you to think about that for just a minute. What are the things, what are the positions that you have that give you that feeling? What are the performances that you do that make you feel that superior? On my wall hangs this. This is my certificate of ordination. And it's interesting because I have a lot of different things on my wall and some fun stuff, some goofy stuff, some things my kids gave me, some family pictures. I've got some degrees on my wall for some disciplines that I had earlier in my life to get an education, all of that. But I'll be honest, this is one of my favorite things that hangs on my wall. And I should have cleaned it up before I got over here, but oh well. Um, you know why this is so special to me? Because this wasn't based on some education I got uh, and some signatures of people that I don't know or, and that honestly don't know me. This was based on people that looked at me, saw me, followed my life, and validated within me a calling God had placed on my life. And they, they, they validated and valued the fact that they see that the Lord's working with me and that I'm trying to be an honorable man of God. And some of the signatures on this document are pretty amazing. Doug Hewitt's signature right down here is on this document. And Doug Hewitt has known me since I was eight years old. And he decided years ago to sign his name on this document, knowing full well what I've been about my entire life. You know who's at the top of this? Brian Glisson. And you want to know something, and, and some of you get this, some of you don't. But there is nothing like a father's approval in your life. And for some of you, like, I, I, I grieve with you because for some of you, you can never do anything right in front of your, in front of your father. And maybe, maybe that's, that's just been the life that you've had to live. And then some of you, man, you get that, and it, you cherish that so much. And so there, there's these, these great folks that have signed off on this, and this is the thing I cherish most in the office. It's, it's a rank, and it's something that, that means something to me. It's a position and, in some ways, a performance. But you want to know the funny thing about this little piece of paper that's framed in this nice little frame? My name's misspelled. <laughs> there's three S's in my name. Glisson. And here's what's crazy. I had this thing framed, never noticed it. And then one day I'm in the office, I'm like, they must spell my name in that thing. 
I didn't change it. I didn't want to change it. You know why? Because every time I swivel my little chair around and I see this document with a misspelled name on it, it reminds me that all the accolades, all the awards, all the trophies, all the positions, and all the performances that I've ever had and done are temporal. These things, this piece of paper is not going to last. It's not only temporal in what it is in, in its existence, it's temporal in giving me lasting joy. And this is what Paul is saying about that. He's saying, hey, the lie is that you're standing with God, and I can even say this, you're standing with others, is based on your position, and it's based on your performance. And the result of these, this way of thinking, the result of buying into this lie, there's two of them. The first one is this, self-righteousness. It's that our positions and performances leave a desire for more in our lives that is never satisfied. Some of you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth. You were the honor student. You were the popular person. You're the achiever. You're the mover and shaker of Shelby. But you want to know the truth? You're always wanting that more. It leaves you wanting the next rank, the next promotion, the next thing. It's this self-righteousness that you've created, very similar to Paul, where it's always this desire for more, and it leaves you dissatisfied. For others, the result is self-hate. Self-hate. It's a lack of positions and performances that lead to the hopelessness of never measuring up. Some of you weren't born with a silver spoon in your mouth. Some of you were born on the wrong side of the tracks. Some of you were born into situations that you couldn't control. Some of you were born with some really tough stuff in your life. And some of you, you didn't get the good grades in school. Some of you weren't very popular. Some of you struggle at your job. Some of you have these things in your life that are tough, and it just seems like you can never get ahead. And when you look at everyone else's accomplishments and everyone else's things, you're thinking to yourself, well, I have a lack of position. I have a lack of performance in my life. And so it leaves you feeling. Feeling this, this feeling of hopelessness that you'll never measure up. And this is the lie that Paul is telling us. He's saying that your standing with God isn't based on your position and it's not based on your performance. Both of these things leave you feeling no joy. And for some of you in the room, maybe that's where you find yourself this morning. Just living for the next vacation. Living for the next fleeting moment of happiness. So Paul gives us a simple equation of joy. Verse 7, he says this. Whatever were gains, and the word gains there is plural, whatever were gains to me, I have considered, I've counted them a loss. Singular, the word singular. For the sake of Christ. He's saying all those various gains, all that stuff I had, I'm going to chalk it up to one big loss. Verse 8, what is more, I consider, I count everything a loss. 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. Now, it looks like Paul is repeating himself in verse 7 and verse 8, but he's not. And here's what I mean by that. In verse 7, the word consider or the word count, uh, it's, it's actually in the past tense. I counted. I considered. He's speaking about what happened at his conversion. He's saying, hey, once I came to know Jesus, all the stuff before Christ was counted as a loss. But verse 8 The word there in the Greek is in the present tense. It's not in the past tense. He's saying this, hey, move ahead 30 years since I met Jesus and I wouldn't change a thing. That I'm sitting here in chains, I'm tied up, I'm chained up. And even 30 years after salvation, I still count all those 30 years, everything in my life, all those accolades, all that stuff, it's still a loss. Compared to Christ. Paul made a calculation about his conversion. And then 30 years later recalculates and comes to the same conclusion. He's saying, hey, look where I'm standing now. We just were singing that lyric a minute ago from the song. Look where I'm standing now. He's standing in prison. Yet there's joy in his life. His equation was this. Everything... Minus Jesus equals nothing. Everything minus Jesus equals nothing. You can have it all. All the accolades, all the money, all the morality, the position, the power, the prestige, the performance. You can have everything. But if you don't have Jesus, you've got nothing, including no joy. Morality may keep you out of jail, but it doesn't keep you out of hell. It's almost as if Paul took all the accomplishments on the desktop of his life and drug them to the recycle bin. All that stuff in his past, every trophy, every status, everything he had going for him, the end of verse 8, he called it all garbage. And garbage is a very kind word for what he actually called it. The word here actually translates much worse than garbage. This is as close to profanity as Paul's ever gotten. His works, he's basically saying this, his works, his position, his performance can be compared to the stuff you step in when you're in the chicken coop. This is where we find Paul. And I want you to think about this. Whose example is Paul following here? He's following Jesus' example. Probably on the same page of your Bible, in Philippians 2, he tells you how Jesus does it. He says in Philippians 2, verse 6, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. He's saying, hey, the example I'm setting, I'm set, I got it from Jesus. If anyone should flaunt their position, their performance, it should have been Jesus, right? He's God, creator, sustainer, all-powerful, all-knowing. Instead, he cast it aside for a different kind of life, a life filled with 
purpose. And this is where joy is found. It's not found in our position. It's not found in our performance. It's found in Christ. That everything minus Jesus equals nothing, but nothing plus Jesus equals everything. He continues in verse 8, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. You see, we bring nothing to the table, and yet would Jesus have everything. If the foundation and core of your life is about what you must do for him, you will never experience joy. But if the foundation of your life is what Jesus has already done on your behalf and his righteousness, it's going to be joy abundant. Psalm 1611 says this, In God's presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures evermore, forevermore. This is where joy is found. Paul continues Verse 10, I want to know Christ, not knowledge, relationship, personally, experientially. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. He's not just talking about the power of Jesus being raised to dead here. He's talking about this idea of resurrection power in the day-to-day of his life. It's remembering Jesus' resurrection, absolutely. It's also remembering Paul's resurrection, Remembering what God done in Paul's life. And then it's Paul saying, hey, God's doing the same resurrecting power in others' lives. To know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now, some of you read that that part there, and let's be honest. You're tempted to want to mark that out because it sounds so upbeat, it sounds so good. And then you get to the, I want to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings. And instead of marking it out, maybe underline it. Because joy doesn't mean easy. Knowing Jesus means knowing suffering. That if you're in Christ and the Son of Man came and suffered Guess what? It means we're going to suffer. Paul's got the ankle chains to prove it. Joy surpasses the happenings of our sufferings. It surpasses it. It goes deeper than the circumstances, whether things are going great or whether things are going really bad. It goes deeper than that. Verse 11, he says, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. What Paul's saying here is, hey, it's not that we just stay in our suffering. It's not that we just stay dead. No, it's something that we're moving through, that there is coming an end for us of not just spiritual resurrection. There's coming an end for us of physical resurrection from the dead, that the Christian life is raised to life in Christ. Right, the, the spiritual resurrection of our salvation of, of our soul, suffering for his name in this lifetime, but physical resurrection is on the horizon. And all along the way, there is joy, 
abundant. This is the life that God has for you. And the subtle enemy that we could easily buy into is that our position and our performance is somehow going to bring joy into our lives. It's not. It's not going to bring lasting joy. It's in everything that Christ has done for us. Your application is this. And I want to encourage you. I, I know this is kind of a weird thing to say, but I think we have a habit of as soon as we see the application, we write the blanks and we start putting our stuff away. And here's the thing. Normally, it's the most important part of the message. I'm not saying that. I just believe that's what God's saying. And for some of us, we get so easily distracted by putting our stuff in our pocketbook and doing all that. I want to encourage you. Write the points and just stay with me in the moment. Okay? But the application is this. Joy is not found in your position or your performance. Joy is found in Christ's presence. Are you standing on your position and performance or are you standing in his presence? We're going to sing the same song in just a minute that we sang a second ago. And I love it because it says it. Look where I'm standing now. Look where I'm standing now. I stand on Jesus. I'm standing in his presence, in Christ's presence. Do you want joy in your life? Do you want something that lasts beyond the vacation, that lasts beyond the promotion, that lasts beyond that one little thing that you got, that promotion? position, that performance? Do you, do you want something that lasts beyond your own performance? I do. So in this moment, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm going to invite you in just a minute to sing with us. And while we sing, we have prayer partners down here at the front. Maybe you've been putting your your stuff. Maybe you've been getting your happiness, because I'm not going to call it joy. Maybe you've been getting your happiness from the things you do and the, the person you are in your own accord. And today God's wanting to say, hey, throw that out. That's garbage. That's fleeting. That doesn't last. And put your joy in the person and presence of Jesus Christ. So as we stand, go ahead and stand to your feet. And let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time to get today, Lord. I pray, God, Lord, that your word uh, would penetrate our hearts, Lord. God, that we would stop finding our, our bliss in just the temporal things of this world. But, God, that we would look to you, Jesus, and want to know you, Lord. Want to go deep with you, Lord. To follow after you, Jesus. To, to know the power of your resurrection. But also, Lord, to to fellowship with you in suffering as well. Lord, knowing that the horizon for us, the future for us who call ourselves faithful Christ followers, God, the horizon is physical resurrection, one day eternity with you. And Lord, if there's someone in this room today that, that that's been their, their life has just been position, performance, and maybe they don't have a relationship with you, maybe they've never experienced any kind of eternal joy, God, today would be the day that they choose to follow you. Help them to just move forward. Find a prayer partner. Pray. But God, we just pray that you would do what only you can do in this time as we sing together. The altar's open, guys.